Hello, Grit Men, Grit Women, Grit Man here, and welcome to the Grit Men Show. Good to be back with you. Took some time off, a little creative pause to reflect, recharge the batteries, and just look around. And as I was looking around, what I saw was that there's some crazy things going on in this world. It's really sad. We've got cops getting shot dang near every day, it seems like, and we got criminals that will get low bond amounts, and then they'll make bail, and then they go out and they commit more crimes, and that don't make a whole lot of sense. We've got a president that says the next Supreme Court justice is going to be a black female, and hey, I'm all for that if that's the best person for the job. But that just seems like a very slippery slope to make a statement like that. We've also got college swimmers that can be on the men's team and then sit out a year and turn into a girl and then go whoop up on the girls in the pool. And Hey, it's 2022. Be what you want to be, but that just doesn't seem right. So we're going to keep going with the show. Uh, we need more grit in the world. And if you're new to the show, thank you for tuning in. And here at the Grit Men Show, we believe in keeping it simple. Be a good human. Contribute to society. Don't be a drain on it. And live your life with grit. The more you listen, the more you'll start to understand what a grit man is, what a grit man isn't. We don't have to agree on everything. There are some absolutes that we must agree on. Let me take a moment to recognize our sponsor, Pumps of Houston, providing 60 years of legendary service to the water and wastewater industry, serving North Texas, Central Texas, and South Texas markets. Pumpsofhouston.com. Check them out. They're great folks. We really appreciate them supporting the Grit Men Show. I'd also like to hear from you. Chris at GritmenClub.com. If you have ideas about the show, if you like it, if you, if you don't like it, if you have some suggestions or ideas about a future guest, uh, or maybe if you're interested in sponsoring or doing a collaboration or an event, Chris at GritmenClub.com. I'd love to hear from you. Now, I told you I took some time off, but I did have a few things going on. I, I got my knee operated on and cleaned up, and that's taken a little longer to heal than I would have liked, but maybe that's what happens when you get a little older. Things don't heal as quick as you would want them to. Did some traveling with my family, which was nice, and I think it's important for grit men to get out of town every now and then and clear your head and just gives you some perspective. Got to take my son hunting, went quail hunting, and... We also uh, went deer hunting. He was able to shoot his first deer. I'm so proud of him. And more on that to come. We may have to do an episode just on that because he asked me a lot of questions. Some I knew the answers to. Some I didn't. And it was a really cool father-son moment. And, uh, more on that to come. But something did happen prior to Christmas. We closed on a piece of land, and I'd like to tell you about it because it kind of brings things full circle and it relates to this podcast. We've been looking to buy land for, shoot, probably five years now, and it all goes back to my grandpa. When I was a boy, he would pick me up on most Saturdays, and we'd go to his farm, and we'd piddle and fish in the tank or shoot guns or check on the cows, And but we were just mostly spending time together and creating memories and getting out of the city, and then on the way back home, we would stop and get some bluebell ice cream and eat that as we drove home but I always wanted to be like my grandpa and have my own place and 
couldn't really find the right place, but we found it and got it under contract and closed. And last summer, I ran into Thomas Rhett, and I've had a lot of y'all ask me about the song that we'll play here shortly when I introduce Hal Sutton. So we have an audio montage that our man Jeff Wood put together and did a great job. Some old College World Series highlights, and then it's the song Country Again by Thomas Rhett. And I saw him and I told him, he, you know, he just released a song and I said, hey, Thomas, that's a hit. And I really like it and it speaks to me. And he said, well, that's, I appreciate that, but what, why? Why is that? I said, well, it makes me want to be like my grandpa. It reminds me to get back to my roots and be intentional with who you're spending time with and how you're spending your time. And I want to get my kids out off the electronics and buy a piece of land. And I told him I was going to do it and asked if I could use that song in the podcast, and he said, sure, man, go for it. So it's pretty cool. That's come full circle, and excited to have it, excited to create some memories and some traditions, and I don't know the first thing about being a landowner and how to farm or ranch, and not real handy, so I'm going to have to learn a lot, but pretty excited, and that's a tribute to my grandpa. All right, I'm also excited about this interview with Hal Sutton, I think you're going to love it. Every time I get to spend time with him, I just enjoy listening to his stories. So he's accomplished so much on the golf course, 14 PJ Tour victories, played in four Ryder Cups. He was also a captain of a Ryder Cup team. You're going to love some of these stories he tells about Phil and Tiger. But I just love his competitive spirit. I also love how open and honest he is. He, he climbed the mountain and but success is hard. Sometimes it's hard to stay there. and Success isn't always linear. Rarely it is. And so he went through some slumps and some valleys. And he had to get back up and be resilient and show grit. And how's a man of grit? As I was finishing the interview, uh, this image popped in my head. And you'll have to listen for yourself and see if you feel that way. But as he was reflecting on his career and what's next for him... It reminded me of Woodrow in the movie Lonesome Dove, that last scene, if you've ever watched it. If you hadn't seen Lonesome Dove, go do it. But there's a reporter that comes up to Captain Call, Woodrow, as he's walking through the town of Lonesome Dove, and he's already buried Gus. But he says, I... They say you're a... say you drove 3,000 miles just to bury your friend. Is that true? They say you're a Texas Ranger, and... Wiped out the Comanches and the bandits. They say you're a man of vision. And it shows Woodrow's face. And he's starting to tear up a little bit. And then they play the clips of the movie with all the tragedy they went through. And the the highs and the lows. And Gus dying and hanging Jake and Dietz dying. And they show Clara and Lorena. And then Woodrow says... A man of vision, you say? Yeah, one hell of a vision. And that's how I feel about how he's proud of what he's accomplished. Sure, he'd probably change a few things, but I think he's there's more to the story. I hope you like it. Thank you for listening, and talk to you soon. Enjoy Thomas Rhett. Guys, he's a lot like Nails. He plays like Nails. He's tough as Nails. He likes to call himself Grit Man, whatever that means. Quit home with my daddy. So didn't make 
Well, Hal, welcome to the Gritman Show. Thank you for taking time to sit down with me today. Oh, I'm glad to. This I've looked forward to it, Chris. Well, y'all out there, we're interviewing, doing this interview at Hal's Golf Academy, the Hal Sutton Golf Academy, over here by Champions in the Houston area. And you may hear a few balls from the other room because there's golfers actually working on their game next to us, so don't worry about that. Well, I'd like to start with someone's background, where they came from, their upbringing. Won't you tell us about where you were born and raised and what your childhood was like um i had a great childhood you know i'm born in shreveport louisiana my dad and mom were from hope arkansas my dad was in the air force i uh, went to the university of arkansas to begin with to play basketball and was up there a year and decided he wanted to come home and marry my mother and uh you know the story goes my dad tells it that his his father told him you'll dig ditches the rest of your life if you're not going to go to college and he said well i may dig ditches but i'll dig the best ditches you've ever seen in your <laughs> life well he goes into the air force marries my mother goes into the air force and uh somehow goes to work for mid-continent supply company which was um uh, you know they basically did parts for bottom hole pumps in the oil business and so he delivered pumps to the oil wells and eventually got into the oil business and uh uh you know was my biggest supporter when i was growing up you know and i played he was a huge arkansas fan so frank brawls would come to shreveport and i played football and, and baseball and frank brawls used to tell me he said how you'd be the greatest middle linebacker that ever played at arkansas and so when i finally took up golf and and went golf. I found myself at the University of Arkansas and Coach Brawls trying to recruit me to play golf, which was certainly not something I had expected. But uh, anyway, uh, my dad gave me every opportunity as a, a youngster to get better. He uh, put me to work in his bottom hole pump supply business one summer. And that's hard work, dirty work. And uh, the year before, I had spent playing some golf and traveling around and uh so after i got finished working he said how'd you like working this year you made some money and i said i didn't like it very much it was hot he said well what about golf and i said i really like that he said okay he said i'll make it all happen for you but he said the minute you quit treating golf like a job you're going back in there so i think that had something to do with me really learning a work ethic that would uh help me play better golf yeah, sounds like you had a real involved father. Um, uh, yeah, I did have an involved father, but you know, he the technical part of the game he never got involved in. Okay, he just me as a human being, he was always involved in it. Right. He he wanted you to uh, sounds like have some passion and work hard, and know that there was consequences if not. Consequences was a big deal with him. You know, he always dangled a carrot in front of me he'd let me pick out something that i really wanted to do and he said what do you want he said you're not working for money so if you attain this goal what is it that would make you happy i'll buy it for you if you do this mm -hmm. so he never paid me money but he would pay me with basically the gift of my choice basically for working hard so besides golf were there any other sports you played growing up well, I played everything until I was 16 years old, okay. and then I quit everything at 16 and just went for golf. Uh, I loved football. I was, you know, I liked hitting people. I loved defense, and uh, you know, somebody else could 
carry the ball. I didn't care about that. I wanted to hit somebody. Yeah. And uh, in baseball, I love baseball. I was right-handed and played first base, which we both know that's not the right thing to do, you know. But you better hit some homers. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, I batted clean up on the team, and you know the we had a pretty good baseball team, but I wanted to play golf. So, so let's talk about golf. So you you chose that sport, and you had an unbelievable amateur career. I, I can't even name all the tournaments you won in my research, but heck, how I think you may be one of the greatest amateurs of all time. Can you tell us about your amateur career? Uh, you know, uh, my progression as a player, uh, I won the first, uh, I won the Louisiana State Junior when I was 16 years old, and I was really playing all the other sports at the time, or I had right up to that point. And I finally told my dad I was going to keep playing. And after I won the Louisiana State Junior, my dad, I told my dad, I said, you know, I think I could be really good at this if I devoted all my time to golf. So that's when I elected to quit everything else. And, you know, like any other athlete that's out there, there's a, you know, you excel in high school. When you finally reach that level where you excel in high school is your senior year, you're going to go to a whole new level when you go to college. Right. So you're starting over again. And all those guys that are in college that are seniors, they're way advanced mm-hmm. compared to you. So you're back down with the chicken scratch, so to speak. And I always loved the challenge of having to climb the ladder. And I felt the same way whenever I got out on tour to begin with. The first six months, I didn't have much success on the tour because I was trying to learn my way. And But my amateur career, you know, I starting my junior year in college, I started winning a lot of golf tournaments. And um, my senior year in college, I, I was runner-up in the NCAAs, the only time I ever played in the NCAAs. Got beaten a four-hole playoff. And I told my dad that summer, I said, I'm going to win. I'm going to play in five tournaments. I'm going to win them all. That was the North-South the Northeast Amateur, the Southern Amateur, the Western Amateur, the U.S. Amateur. And I won all of them but the Southern Amateur, which was played here in Houston at Champions, and Bob Tway won that. And then I was invited to the World Amateur, and I won the World Amateur after that. And So you won five. I, I did win five, but we had to add a tournament to get it done. <laughs> yeah. So that was what your junior year in college. That was my senior year in senior college. senior college, yeah. and you went to Centenary. I did go to Centenary. That's in Shreveport. Uh-huh. And I didn't graduate. I like nine hours graduating in four years. Okay. And I told my dad, I said, I'm going to go back now and get my degree, because if I don't go back now, I never will get it. And so I went to work for my dad for six or eight months there and finished my degree and then went on and got my card after that. And what was the process to turn in pro back then? Just going to tour school, okay. basically. Uh, so I had to go to the regionals and then to the nationals. Uh, so, you know, I went through tour school my first time, which that's, was a big help. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in today's world, if you have that kind of record in college, you build all these points up and you might be able to just go right out on the tour, depending on how right. you... Or get a sponsor's exemption or, or, or something. Yeah, yeah. Like I think Spieth maybe did that and a few yeah. others. Yeah. Well, my first year on the tour was still the top 60 money earners. You know, it wasn't the top 125. Gotcha. So, I mean, you know, I was I played 16 straight tournaments one time because I kept making the cut and I didn't want to have to go back Monday qualify. So I wasn't making any money at the at, – it was early on in my rookie year. But, you know, kids don't have any idea what that's like. You know, once you get your card, you, you kind of pick and choose where you're going to go play. And 
I didn't have that luxury then. It was play when you were eligible to play. Right. So you turned pro in 1982, or is it 81? Well, 81, I got my card. 82 okay. was my first year on the tour. Okay. In that 82 season, you won an event. It was in uh, Disney. The I very last tournament of the year. Okay. And it was a big, you know, the first six months was a struggle. Uh, Raymond Floyd kind of took me under his wing and said, Hal, I'm going to teach you how to play. You don't really know how to play. I thought, man, how insulting is that? I won a lot of golf tournaments, but he was right. I I knew a little bit about golf, but uh, the level that I needed to know, I still didn't have under my wings yet. Mm -hmm. And so he taught me the art of hitting it pin high all the time. And uh, so I started to progress at the end of the year. I started getting a lot better, and it seemed like every week I'd get a little bit better. Like I should have won the week before in Pensacola. I had the lead going into the final round. And Calvin Pete came from behind and shot really low and beat me by one or two. I don't remember. And But the progression of the year, I could feel winning coming. And Disney was the last event of the year, and never will forget it. I was playing with Jay Haas last round. I was in the last group. <clears throat> Bill Britton had finished earlier, and he shot like 64 or something, you know, and he's one shot ahead of me on 18. And I drove it down the middle, hit it on the green about 15 feet with a big curving putt, and I made the putt to force the playoff, shot 67, and then we went four holes, and I birdied the fourth hole to finally win the playoff. So in 1981, you win your first tournament. What was the check for finishing first? $72,000. 72000 Uh-huh. 72000 and now that's pocket change for those guys. Yeah, that's – well, I guess it's a little better than making the cut now. But, yeah, I mean, if you win today, it's at least a seven-figure check. It's oh, over a yeah. million dollars, I would think. Yeah, all of them. I don't think there's anything that's not over a million now. But I can put that into perspective for you. My rookie year, I was working with Byron Nelson. So when that rookie year was over, I made two hundred and I think it was two hundred and thirty-seven thousand dollars, and we finished eleventh on the money list with that kind of money. And Byron Nelson called me. He said, "How? Why don't you come over to Preston Trails? I want to work with you a little bit." I said, "Okay." So I went over there and he watched me hit balls for about thirty minutes, and we went inside, and we always would spend, you know, thirty minutes hitting a golf ball and three hours talking. And so we go inside to have lunch at Preston Trails and. He sat down in front of me, and I'm kind of putting a jacket over the chair or whatever, you know, and I'm sitting down and look over at him. He had a tear running down his cheek. And I said, Mr. Nelson, I said, what's wrong? He said, nothing, Hal. He said, that's tears of joy. <laughs> and I said, oh, really? And he said, yeah. He said, you know, he said, you just won the uh, rookie of the year. It's 11th on the money list. Won your last tournament. And you won $237,000. And he said, that's more than I won in my entire career. <laughs> and he said, you know what's fun about it? He said, I had a little something to do with the growth of the tour, and I had something to do with the growth in your game. Oh, that's pretty special. That's pretty special. So when did when did your relationship with him start? Uh, my dad did business with a uh, Brighton Shift in Dallas. Mr. Shift and Mr. Nelson were really good friends. Okay. And Mr. Schiff told my dad when I was about a sophomore in college, he said, you know, Hal's going to be a pretty good player. He said, I think maybe uh, you need to, we need to hook him up with Mr. Nelson. So I guess kind of between my sophomore year and my junior year, I started going to see him a little bit. I never really did work with him a lot. I was probably once a quarter I was over there. 
and I got more out of him mentally than I ever did physically. You know, okay. back in those days, we didn't have cameras and track man and everything else. It was just a feel and a, and a general look. And he would tell me a few things about the golf swing, but he really taught me about playing golf more than anything else. So you, Byron Nelson would be one of your mentors. Absolutely. Any others that come to mind? Uh. Well, Floyd Horgan, the guy that was my coach in uh, college, was really special. Still is. He's still alive. And I talk to him actually pretty often because he's truly very gritty. Yeah. And uh, I always like his perspective on life. Of course, Jackie Burke, who just turned 99 years old, was always uh, a strong mentor in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I gravitated to people that told me the truth, mm-hmm. even if it wasn't what I wanted to hear. Right. You know, I, I felt like I wanted honesty, and you know, honesty's not always pleasant. You know, but we're living in a world now where people just want the pleasantries. Right. And you know, that's not how you get better. You know, constructive criticism that sometimes burns helps us get better. Yeah, especially by people that you know have your best interests. Yeah. and like They're not looking to cut you down just to cut you down. They they know you can be better. Yes, they know you can be better, and they know what better is. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> That's really critical, too. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, so you rookie of the year, you go on your second year on tour. You, you had an unbelievable year. So you won the 1983 PGA at Riviera. And there was a pretty good golfer paired with you in that final group. Can you tell us about that? Well, he wasn't paired with me. He was in front of me. Oh, okay. Uh, he was actually. So you were looking at him. Yeah. He was, well, I couldn't see him. He was two groups in front of me, I think. And But I could hear it because Riviera's in a valley. And, of course, you know, the crowd yep. is up up higher. And, I mean, every time we didn't have, uh, you know, uh, scoreboards like they have today they had just the manual scoreboards where people were putting the numbers up and every time the people would put a birdie up for him it, they'd go crazy you so know? we're talking about jack nicholas yeah <laughs> we are talking about the man yeah uh but anyway he shot an incredible round that day and I think I, 66 yeah he shot really low had a sunday and, charge and i had a four-shot lead going into number 12 and i bogeyed 12 13 and 14 okay and you know what makes that uh, kind of pertinent information is, is two weeks prior to that, I had a six-shot lead going into Sunday and lost the tournament. And it's just another one of those learning stages that I had to get past. So, so let's stop there. So, so a few weeks ago, you, lose, you blow a six-shot lead, and now you're on the back nine Sunday in a major, four-shot lead. You bogey 12, 13, 14 to have a one-shot lead. That's right. So um, was, was doubt creeping in? Oh, absolutely you know you can't keep it from creeping in and you know i, I remember getting on the 15th tee and i told freddie i said give me the towel freddie your, your caddy my caddy i said give me the towel and i mean i basically wanted to hide my face i wanted to make everything go dark because when you get in those intense moments like that the world gets so big you can't really create a finite thought and uh so I, I was trying to reduce the size of my world. So if I put my head in that towel, everything goes dark. I can think about what I want to think about. And I remember the specific thought, how don't let this define you. 
because if you do this again, this will define you. They will define you this way. So let's just hit one shot at a time. All The only thing I have control over is this tee shot right now. So let's drive it in the fairway. That's it. That's one step to success. And that's the way I treated the last four holes coming in. And, uh, you know, I, I tell the world gets big. It's really big right now with social media. You know, everybody's weighing in with their own feelings about everything that's going on. And, you know, if I were trying to play golf right now, I wouldn't even be part of social media. I couldn't care what less what people were thinking. But yet, the tour goes out there and pays all these people a lot of money for being popular in social media. Mm-hmm. So what are we really – are we really trying to be – really good golfers now are we trying to be people that people admire or what are we trying to be really i don't know or just people that have the most followers i I don't know i don't know i don't know (laughs) know how to answer it's a it's a crazy world it is a crazy world yeah so you end up winning the pga i did uh and so jack nichols came in second so we'll feather in your cap to say that you won a major and you held off arguably probably the greatest golfers there is he was at that time, he was probably getting closer to the end, but he still had some gas in the tank because he won the 86 Masters. Yeah, yeah. This was 83, so he he was still winning some golf tournaments. Yeah. Uh, but. And, and prior to that, I, the schedule's different, so the players was actually held in March. Okay? Yeah. So you won the players, and then you won the first major. Right. Yeah. Well, actually, my first major. It was the last major of the year, though. Got it. Yeah. So, okay, now it's the PGA's first. Okay, now, yeah. it, just now. So there was some some. Did you win any other tournaments? I didn't year? win any other tournaments in the in between that. But and then did they have a tour championship that year, or, did, or just the money list? How did that? Uh, work? It ended up uh, just the money list, mm-hmm. and just the money list. Yeah, like just that's the money list. Deal. I came back though. There is a little bit of. Uh, I, I had already scheduled to go to Japan for a month. And I left with a hundred and something thousand dollar lead on the money list. And when I came back, I had lost the money list by three hundred dollars or something like that. And there was one tournament left, and uh, it was in Abilene. And Fuzzy had won Las Vegas and passed me on the money list. And I never will forget this. I was finishing on the front nine and 36 holes, and I was not making the cut, actually. And ended up finishing birdie, birdie, birdie eagle to make the cut and finished seventh in the tournament to win $10,000 and win the money list. So <laughs> Maybe one of your best seventh-place finishes. Yeah, it may be one of the best. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's good. So you had an unbelievable amateur career. You come out on tour, you win your rookie of the year, then you have an unbelievable second year, win the my list. Then sometime after that, I don't know if you call it a slump, but but maybe success got to you. How would you define the next 10 years after that? Well, the next three years I still played pretty solid golf. Like I, uh, The next year I did not win in 84, but I finished in the top 10 like 10 or 11 times. So I – three seconds uh then in 85 i won twice and in 86 i won twice so uh won some good tournaments too you know one uh memorial one uh uh phoenix open several really good tournaments but 
you know, they would write articles about how I wasn't meeting everybody's expectations. You know, it was like they didn't say I was a failure, but it was basically letting them down. You know, mm-hmm. their expectations were higher than what I was producing. <clears throat> and, you know, I wasn't playing for everybody else. You know, I, I play golf because I love the game, you know, but all of a sudden now I'm having to, you know, my dad was a tough critic. He was hard to please. So, you know, I'm thinking, okay, if I got, you know, a thousand of my dads out there and they're all going to tell me what they think of me, this may get pretty tough. Uh, I love the truth and I like hearing what people say, but it, it, by the same token, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't a slouch by any means. And, uh, it disturbed me a lot. I guess if I look back, I'm, I was too sensitive to other people's feelings. Uh, so I started, I loved horses. I started buying cutting horses and I started riding cutting horses. And, you know, I guess the mistake I mentioned to you earlier was I should have just quit. Uh, but I participated, and but my passion was on something else. So, therefore, I lost a lot of the success that I'd had, you know, I just wasn't working as hard at my golf game. And we know what happens when you do that. Bad shots creep in and you begin to question how good you are. Yeah. It's a hard enough game as it is. If your heart's not in it. And right. I mean, dang near impossible. Yeah, it was. Uh, and I, I reached that point actually to the point that I lost my card. I never will forget this. I was sitting in, I was like, 16th on the all-time money list at the time and i lost my card made seven cuts that year and we were sitting in the parking lot in las vegas and my dad said well you need to go back to the tour school i said i'm not going back to the tour school i said i'm 16th on the money list i'll use my uh, all-time money list exemption and play the tour next year he said well what happens if you don't make it i said if i don't make it it's time for me to look for something else to do i said now is the time i've got to rededicate myself and you know i was comeback player of the year after that but because i rededicated and stopped thinking about the horses and started thinking about golf uh 94 or 5 i can't remember i think 95 you won the bc BC open Open. and um, if my research is right so you had kind of a nine-year drought maybe 86 to 95 Uh between wins right yeah it was a long time for someone that had had won a lot of tournaments prior to that it was a long time yeah i had two different careers really uh you know i had kids that's one of the things you know you reassess life once you have kids i think uh and i wanted to, my kids to maybe see me play some decent golf instead of have to read about what i did and even then they they were little even when i played you know was really playing well when i was 40 but uh they can still they they were in some of the pictures. Right. So. <laughs> I saw some. Yeah. So you you went in ninety five. You're you're getting your game back. Um, you make I believe four Ryder Cup teams. Yeah. As a player. Yeah. And I've heard you say that that nineteen ninety nine was it Brookline. Yeah. Was one of your favorite golfing experiences. I think it was probably my favorite golfing experience because you you know when you do something with others. It doesn't get any better than that. Individual effort is great, but, you know, an accomplishment that is shared, there's nothing like that. And, you know, I, Payne and I were pretty close, and, uh, you know, Payne died 30 days later in the plane crash. And uh, we spent a lot of time at that Ryder Cup together, and late that night we were planning on the next one, you know, yeah. being part of it. 
that's the one that Justin Leonard made the long putt. Yeah, right? that's yeah. the one Justin made the long yeah, putt. Celebrated on the green, and the Euros got a little mad at us. Yeah, they got a little mad, but you know, there wasn't any bad intent. No, there mean. wasn't any bad intention, and the truth is, is we all we'd come from so far behind that we were overtaken with excitement, yeah. and uh, I guess that happens in sport sometimes. Awesome. I like seeing some emotion. Seems like sometimes these guys today are more ro- robotic than human, and uh, uh, I like seeing an athlete show some emotion. Yeah. All right, so let's go to 2000, when, before I met you, my memory of you or, or what I knew about you came in the year 2000 at the Players' Championship when you beat Tiger. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I want to talk about that time first before we get into Sunday. Tiger Mania had taken over, uh-huh. and I believe it seemed like a lot of players, or at least the media, if he started a tournament and was winning or close to the lead after day one, people were ready to roll over or give him the trophy. Can you tell us about how it was as a player playing against him and being in that time? Well, when Tiger came along, uh, Tiger started to redefine what a good player was, you know. Uh, and I, he wasn't afraid to say what he thought. You know, he... Um, most of the time fairly eloquently said in some sort of way that he was better than everybody else and he'd prove it over time. And I mean, you know, I I made it my own words there, but that's kind of the way we interpreted what he was saying. And then he would back it up, you know, and, uh, you know, he was beating people. They were beating themselves because they didn't it was back to where jack used to be you know a lot of people didn't feel like they could beat jack Mm -hmm. so jack had most of them beat before they ever teed off so jack had that same kind of Uh fear that he would so there's a few people that come along in time that do that to others Mm -hmm. jack nicholas did it first you know and all the arnold palmer lovers didn't like it because you know, Jack was dethroning the king. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Jack, you know, I stayed with Jack in 1986 at the Ryder Cup, and I asked him point blank, I said, could you do today what you did then? Well, that was in 1986. And he said, how? He said, you know, I doubt it. And he said, here's the reason why. He said, you know, Arnold thought he could beat me. Trevino thought he could beat me. Gary Player thought he could beat me if it came right down to it. He said, maybe Raymond, too. But he said, other than that, there wasn't many players that thought they could beat me if it came right down to the end. So he said, you know, I knew I was going to beat them, and they thought they were going. I was going to beat them. So I only had to deal with four or five players each week. Mm-hmm. He said, in today's world, there's more players that expect to win. Well, that was true, too, when Tiger came along. It got to where we weren't sure we could beat him. And, uh, you know, Colin Montgomery made the uh, statement right before the TPC that year that we're all playing for second. Nobody can beat Tiger. Davis Love had a three-shot lead on him at Bay Hill the week before and ended up getting beat. And so when the Players' Championship came along, I was hitting it unbelievable. I knew that I was going to be a contender that week. And I love TPC. It was a great course. It set up good for me. 
And then with me hitting it good, I thought, mm, somebody's going to have to cope with me this week. Mm-hmm. And uh, So you, you were confident. I was confident, yeah. yeah. But before we go into the, the final round with Tiger, I read that in 1999, you had a meeting with your caddy about wanting to be paired with him. Yeah. So we can backtrack here. I mean, I finished up. 90 uh in 99 i had a great year won canada and i won greensboro and was a leading point earner on the 99 Ryder cup team so it was a great year to finish out and so i was sitting at home and i called freddie that night and i said freddie meet me at the office tomorrow and so freddie came down and i said so freddie i said you know i just want to compliment you you did a great job this year and uh i want to set some goals for us for this next year and uh, I said, we had a great year. And I said, somewhere on the West Coast, we're going to be paired with Tiger because we're going to be—they're going to match us up often. And I said, wherever that is, I said, my goal is we got to beat him both rounds. And Freddie said, why is that? And I said, well, I said, because there's three people that need to know that that can happen: you, me, and him. And I said, if I do it once, we all three think well, that might be luck. We do it twice. That's more than luck. So as luck would have it, I was paired with him at Riviera. And I beat him both rounds at Riviera. Of course, Riviera is a good course for me. I won there before. But it was playing out like I had hoped it would play out. And so, you know, whenever the final round you know when i knew i was going to be paired with uh are you ready to get into that or no, not? <laughs> I, I love that that's why i'm sitting here we'll, uh, we'll show the audience if we'll take a picture but i wore my riviera shirt today yeah. because not only did you win the pga there but yeah that was another you, pivotal moment there right and, and you had a plan i mean yeah. it almost reminds me of david and goliath in the bible like yeah. he, david did he didn't just go fight goliath no he worked up to it he, yeah well he, i mean every great moment like that there's there is build up to it yeah there's you know, there was a reason why that came about. But you had a plan. You said, I had a plan. and you wanted to test yourself. Yeah, I was there. Was, I was testing myself the yeah. whole way. Uh, but anyway, you know, the final round, uh, the night before the final round, I had a four shot lead going into seventeen on uh, the fifty third hole, and I hit a good shot into the back of the green. But you know, as it gets, sometimes it gets so hard, and it just took. I carried it a foot too far, and the ball went over the green into water and i made triple and so i finished with a one-shot lead which might have been good because sometimes it's harder to play with a big lead because Mm -hmm. you go out there with a protective attitude basically but anyway long story short uh, we go into the media center after the 54 holes and you know everybody's trying to paint the picture of how i'm gonna get beat and uh it was it was the most difficult media session i ever went through because you know again once in life i'm i'm facing what other people say and adversity that i can't cope with and they 
you know, you, you're not capable of this. So they were pretty blunt. They, they were pretty blunt. Basically yeah. saying, you're not going to beat him. Yeah, pretty blunt. Yeah. So finally, I thought, well, I got to put this to an end. I got to bring this to an end some sort of way. And I've closed with this. I said, you know, I might buy into some of this stuff all y'all are saying. But this morning when I got up from saying my prayers off my knees, I was praying to God, not Tiger Woods. So that means he's a man just like me. And we will settle this tomorrow. And I ended it left right there. And, you know, I, I had to say something dynamic because shut up right. is what I really wanted to say. Yeah. And But yeah. I believed in myself enough to do that. Where did that come from? Because that's what I think we need more of today. Just, hey, I'm going to go out there and give it my best. And I may not win, but don't count me out. Right. And win or lose, I'm going to I'm gonna try my hardest. And, and you, you had that moxie and metal. I think that was given to me by my dad, to be honest with you. I mean, you know, my dad, he said, I don't care if you play good or bad, but he said, play hard. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was always, I was never, I, you know, I'll go ahead and say this. Uh, back in those days, men were few words. They mm-hmm. said less, but they meant more. Yeah. And uh, I said to my dad not long ago, you know, I'll be 64 my next birthday, and he's 89 now. And I said, you know, are you pleased? I said, you never told me you love me or anything else. I said, he looked up at me, and he said, oh, you're a word guy, huh? <laughs> he said, how I gave up all my friends, I gave up all my hobbies to make your dreams come true. Did that tell you I loved you? I gave it all up for you. <laughs> and... You know, that kind of broke me down there, right. you know. But uh, that was who my dad was. I mean, he, he pushed me hard. He, You know, I didn't need the world to push me hard because yeah. my dad was pushing me so hard it was unbelievable. And, then, right. and probably why I wanted to depart from golf was because he never quit pushing on me. Yeah. And now the world is pushing on me so hard, too. And I, I needed a break. I couldn't I couldn't deal with all that. I should have said, hey, I'm breaking down. Y'all got to, you know, to my dad, hey, you got you to gotta get off of me, you know. But I didn't. So, so you... He didn't tell you he loved you, but you could feel it. Don't... I could feel it. Yeah, yeah. He... It was some tough love, though. It was tough love. Yeah, yeah it but was. It t- made you tougher. And that's a that's a fine line. I mean, yeah. you're, you're a parent, and I am too. And I'm shoot. I I probably tell my kids I love them way too much. <laughs> I know I tell mine way too much. Yeah, but let me tell you what my dad did for if me. If that's more. a thing, I don't know. <laughs> we don't know. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's like seasoning food, you know. Right. It's a little bit of this and a little bit of that, you yeah. know. And uh, But I will tell you this. My dad taught me consequences. Mm-hmm. And we don't have enough consequences in the world today. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're letting people off the hook for things that shouldn't they shouldn't be let off the hook for. If they weren't let off the hook when they were young, then they wouldn't expect to be let off the hook when they were older. Right. And my dad never mm-hmm. let me off the hook. I mean, he reminded me all the time, and I, I think I mentioned to you earlier about he always dangled a carrot in front of me. He, you know, I didn't uh, – he made everything come true, and he knew that – he didn't want me to turn pro too quick. And he said, look, you know, I know you're not working. I want you to work on your golf game, so I'm having to buy everything for you. So you pick whatever it is that if you do this, money would have bought you. You know, he did it with a car. Or, you know, this is a great story. I'll never forget this as long as I live. Going into the U.S. Amateur, it was two weeks before the U.S. Amateur. My dad said, so you've had a great year. He said, no, last turn of the year is coming up, the U.S. Amateur. He said, if you win the U.S. Amateur, what do you want? 
And I said, Dad, I said, you know, Jack Nicholas is my idol. And I said, he's got a solid gold Rolex. And I said, man, I, all those great players on the tour got solid gold Rolexes. He said, so you want a Rolex if you win the, the tournament? I said, yeah. He said, go put your shoes on. Let's go. So he took me that night and bought me a solid gold Rolex. And he said, I want you to wear that Rolex to that tournament because he said, every time you look down on it, every time you take it off, you remember the commitment that you made. Hmm. He said, I fulfilled my commitment. He said, now you go fulfill yours. And I won the tournament. Yeah. That's so, awesome. I mean, you know, my dad, he understood, you know, yeah, he 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 didn't have a college education. He quit when he was a freshman in college, but he he understood life a little bit. Mm-hmm. That's great. All right, let's go back to the players. So you you sleep with a one shot lead. You get up. Uh, what did you feel like on that first tee? Were you nervous? Uh, well, yeah, I was nervous, um, but not like out of control nervous you know i felt butterflies but Mm -hmm. you know as soon as i hit the first shot drove it down the middle of the fairway as soon as i hit that shot it's like okay let's go and i imagine that you were probably hitting first into most greens that day tiger's really long hitter Uh think that was an advantage or disadvantage it was an advantage and i had told myself that you know, before we started, I said, look, you know, some people see this as a disadvantage because I'm not as long as him, but I was as good an iron player as there was. So I said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. Here's my strategy. Let's be in the fairway so I can hit the first shot in and I'll keep the pressure on him all day long. And, you know, I missed one green, uh, which was the eighth green and went in the back left bunker and I hit the greatest shot of my life out of that bunker. I mean, if I look back on my career, the single greatest shot I ever hit was that bunker shot. On eight? On number eight. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Tiger thought I was dead. And he walked over there and looked at it. And I, I remember seeing him shake his head no to Stevie like he's dead. And I hit <clears throat> the greatest shot out about eight feet behind the hole and made the putt for par. And we're walking over to the ninth tee and Tiger kind of, looked at me and he said that was an unbelievable shot i said yep it was i said tiger i ain't going away today (laughs) so you know i had confidence in myself i believed that i was going to hit the shots right and uh you know i had you know you talk about playing i had a plan for 16 you know we got rained out i had had him on the ropes actually and i had a three-shot lead and he was way in the woods and i'm right in the center of the fairway and they rained it out it was hard and fast playing into my hands and all of a sudden it rains three inches and now it's playing into his hands so i had a plan when we get to 16 i had to have a three-shot lead and the reason why i had to have that three-shot lead was because he may go for the green and two and may eagle and i may not and may lay it up and may make par so if i got a three-shot lead even if that plays out i still have a one-shot lead going into 17 18 and he's got to play those two holes the same way i do so and literally it played out exactly like that i drove it through the fairway a little bit into the right rough elected not to go for the green from there laid it up and he hit five, five iron in there about 12 feet, you know. So he made eagle. He made eagle, and I made par. So one-shot lead. You, you go to 17, and... He's ra- got the tee. He's got the tee, but the round prior to that, you made triple. Uh-huh. Any demons in your head? 
as an amateur, a lot of times you have a bad hole and then you play it again. All you can think about is, gosh, last time I played this, I made triple. Wasn't even in your mind. Uh, wasn't even in my mind. I didn't even care about that. I had pured it all day long, yep. and it was softer. So I knew that the firmness of that green wasn't going to let it go. It, it was softer now, so it wasn't going over the green. All I had to do was hit the putting surface, and I knew I was going to do that. And, you know, he hit this lame duck shot. I mean, honestly, it looked like it wasn't even going to clear the water. It was right at the flag, but he mishit it. Mm-hmm. And there was about six inches of rough that was about eight inches of tall above the pylons and it actually went in that rough he was you know six inches from being in the water and it was a tough shot from there it was he had it was short so it was he had to take the whole break you know there's a pretty good slope in that green and it come out soft on him he left it about 10 feet short and he had a putt that was breaking probably five or six inches and he poured it right in the hole for his par and I had hit a shot in the center of the green, which meant I had a fast putt because it was going down the slope. But, you know, I wasn't going to take any chances. I didn't need to. He was in the rough, you yeah. know. So so he put the pressure on. He made that 10 or 12-footer there, you know. And I hit a really good putt, but it still went by the hole about three feet. And I made the three-footer. So it's off to 18 with a one-shot lead. One-shot lead. Uh, he has the tee. Yep. Still has a tee. He still has a tee. And I don't know what he, what he did. What did he do? He hit that Stinger 2-iron down there about 270. <laughs> and, you know, if I hit 3-wood, which I'd hit 3-wood the first three days, mm-hmm. I, that meant I was going to play the last shot in. I mean, play the first shot in, which meant I couldn't make a decision. I had to make a decision before I hit the shot. And I told Freddie. Freddie and I were talking all the way to the uh, tee. I said, we need to have the last shot. With a one-shot lead, we need to make a decision on how aggressive we're going to be. So I drove it. I knew that was the only thing I could outdrive that. My three-wood, I couldn't stay up with his two-iron. So uh, I drove it and hit a perfect drive right down the left center of the fairway. So, But he was a little ahead of you, so you have the first shot in? Uh-uh. No, he was behind me. Oh, you outdrove him? I drove him. Okay. So – and he hit it long right. Got it. So you're thinking, what are, what are you thinking now as you're about to hit this shot? Well, first of all, I had a perfect yardage. Yep. I had 179 yards. Stock six iron is a 180-yard shot for me. So, you know, I didn't have to get on it, and I didn't have to let anything off of it. And so we didn't have any wind. It was dead still at the time. So when I hit the shot, it was right at it. And... You know, I'm looking at it. When I said be the right club today, it was just where that came from is don't let a gust of wind come up. Something outside agency will have to take this away from me because I hit it just like I knew I needed to. So I knew it was going to come down within 10 or 15 feet of that spot. And, you know, the only thing that could change it would be some outside agency. Mm -hmm. And that's basically what I was saying. Just be the right club today. I don't want to play anymore. (laughs) Was that a saying that you used? I had never said it before in my life, ever. Yeah, it was just, it was a moment of passion, you know. Well, you you contributed that saying to golf. Now it's a a (laughs) saying that everybody everybody said. Everybody uses it now. (laughs) So you you two-putt, I believe, and and you win. uh, He almost holed the chip shot. Yeah. He hit it up there about two inches from the hole. I had to watch it all the way. Uh, but it was, yeah, it was a, the highlight of my career, you know. That's awesome. You talked about Freddie. And yeah. I 
always like to see the interaction between player and caddy. When did you want his input? When did you not? What was y'all's relationship like? Uh, we had a great relationship. He was more of a, he was less of a detail guy and more of a general sort of guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we both did the yardages. So, you know, I depended on him to read my feelings more than anything else. So if, if, if I was getting a little bit down or whatever, he, he needed to lift me up or if, uh, remind me of the positive things to think instead of uh, allowing negativity to get into the picture. Mm-hmm. And he was good at it. So he was he was somewhat of a mental coach. Yeah, yeah, keeping you focused. But it, in terms of the type of shot you wanted to hit or, or reads on the green, did you do that a lot yourself? I, I did that myself. I read. I, I pretty much read all the greens myself. If I was confused or if I was in doubt i might sometimes say what do you think freddie but uh he never knew how hard i was going to hit one so it's really hard i think it's uh, i think it's very difficult to start asking the caddy you know where the brake line is at Mm -hmm. because it takes a certain speed on any brake line Mm -hmm. let's go to 2004 you get nominated or asked to be the Ryder cup captain can you takes behind the curtain a little bit how does that process work choosing a captain <clears throat> i'm not sure i know exactly but uh usually uh, it's guys that have had Ryder cup success themselves and uh that have participated in the Ryder cup, enough of them that they know kind of what's going on mm-hmm. and uh well, you had a you played in four. I played and, in four and you prior to that. Had a really good record as a player. Yeah, one of the few Americans at the time that had a winning record. Right. You know, most losing records. But anyway, <clears throat> you know, it helps when you're a PGA champion. They t- tend to look at PGA champions uh, as kind of a reward for winning their championship. Okay. Uh, but anyway, you know, they. I was 46 years old. So I was a little bit young. They really had their eye on pain, but then pain passed away, mm. you know. So, uh, so I guess I got to ask early, and they asked me, and I told them I said I had to think about it. I don't know, and the reason why I said I had to think about it is it required a lot of work, and. I try to put my all into stuff, you know, and I try to direct my thinking into whatever I'm doing at the time. And I felt like it was going to be hard to play really good golf and be a Ryder Cup captain. Because in those days, you got two assistants. Actually, prior to that, you got one assistant. Now we were up to two. And I always had in my mind I was going to use Jackie as one of them, and he wasn't wasn't current, so he didn't know anything about those guys. He knew something about golf, but he didn't know anything about those guys. And then as, you know, I was also loyal to my friends. And Steve Jones had been out of golf for a little while. And he won the U.S. Open at Oakland Hill. So I wanted to reward Steve Jones. Mm -hmm. And uh, so both players really weren't that current. I was the only one that was current. And so, you know, in retrospect, my dad begged me not to do it. 
he said, no, I don't do this, Hal. You're still exempt all the way to your 50, and you still got some game. You can still play. And I chose to be the Ryder Cup captain. And, you know, after the Ryder Cup that year, that was the last competitive round of golf I ever played was in 2004. Hmm. Uh, on a regular tour, I quit after that, and I was still eligible for the remaining four years. But I was I had such a sour taste in my mouth after the 2004 Ryder Cup that I just said, I'm nah, I'm gonna go do something else, which I did. Yeah, I think I think you were judged rather harshly, and I don't know why. Uh, maybe it was a few opinions, but maybe one guy in particular will get into his opinion, what he said. But I I think time will heal that. I think most people realize that you didn't hit one shot, <laughs> <laughs> and it was. It sounds like you were basically volunteering your time and then your career. Yeah. I did. I volunteered it all. Mm-hmm. That's what people don't get. It's a total gift. <laughs> right. I paid nothing for doing it. Yeah. And I was carted all around the United States promoting another product of somebody else's. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was bittersweet. You know, I enjoyed doing it. But at the same time, uh, you know, I was trying to do something for golf. When I paired Tiger and Phil together, uh, I, I knew golf was the winner if those guys became friends because their future was in front of them at that time. And, you know, they, I don't know, for whatever reason, they just weren't, uh, they weren't big enough to be friends at the time, I guess, you know. Tiger didn't have any problem with it, but I think Phil had more problem with it. Mm -hmm. So, who knows? Let's dig into that a little bit. So, you're the captain. Do the players come in there? You play usually on a – you start on a Friday. Is it Friday, Saturday, Sunday? Yeah. So when does the team get there? Monday. So team's at Monday, and, and Phil had undergone an equipment change prior to that. Is that right? That's right. Okay. So Callaway offered him a lot of money to change equipment. Then they offered him a whole lot more money if he'd change everything prior to the Ryder Cup, which he did. Ball, clubs? Everything. Okay. Everything. So and he's coming in as a – a good player, but uh, he's changed some variables. He has. And you decided to pair them together, and I remember you telling me a story. They were concerned which ball they were going to use, because I guess he has a Callaway, and maybe Tiger was using Nike. Yeah. Well, you know, all week long, Phil kept saying to me, you know, who are you going to put me with? Who are you going to put me with? And I, I don't know. And, you know, I said, so on Tuesday, Monday night, I said, y'all just go up, pair up with who you want to go out and play with, and we'll be watching, and we'll try to decide who is going to play together. You know, we don't know. You know, in the old days, we paired with balls, whoever played similar balls. But, you know, by that time, they had a bunch of different flavors of golf balls, so you couldn't do that anymore. And uh, so anyway, I said, the second day, just pair up with somebody different, and hopefully by tonight, we'll know who y'all are going to play with, and then that thursday's round you can play with who you're going to play with so wednesday he comes in to me and he says i don't i'm not even going to go out and play today he said uh, i don't know how far i'm hitting it so i got to go over on this other golf course and see how far the ball's going now that's the ball he brought up there that's the callaway ball you know here we are at the Ryder cup and the second best player on the team doesn't know how far his callaway ball is going so how do you think it's – I'm feeling at this point. So I go Perplexed. over. I said, you know, uh, this is what I said. I said, Phil, there's 35,000 people that came up here. 
expecting to see Phil Mickelson play golf. You're going to disappoint him today and not go out there. He said, that's right. I'm not. I said, okay. So the rest of the team goes over. I go over to the media center and I get the world rankings and have them printed out for me. And I got the world rankings right here. And I walk back over there and Phil's at the end of the tee, probably a thousand people watching him hit balls. Everybody else is gone. It's just me and Phil. But on the way over there, I forgot about this. I asked Tiger, I walked up to Tiger and I said, Tiger, I said, let me ask you a question. I said, if I paired you and Phil together, would you have a problem with that? He looked up at me and smiled and he said, uh, uh-uh. <laughs> that's all he had to say. Uh, uh-uh. I said, okay, if you don't have a problem with that, I said, I haven't made up my mind for sure. I'm going to do that. But I said, would you give me three of your golf balls? He said, uh, huh. I said, just take them out of that box and give them to me. I'm just going to slip them in my pocket right here. Okay. So I put those balls in my pocket and I walked down to the end of the range. He leaves nobody there. Phil, Phil and bones are down there. And, uh, I watched Phil for a little bit hit balls, and he turned. I never said a word. He turns around to me and he says, "Huh, you still don't know who I'm gonna play with?" I said, "I I got a good idea." I said, "I'm not 100 percent sure yet, but I said, you know, I went over to the media center and I said I got the world rankings. I said I got them right here. I said let me show you. I said it says right here you're the third best player in the world. I said third best player in the world doesn't need help." I said, you know, the first time Seve Ballesteros and Olathebel got beat, I said, Larry Myers was my partner, and I said, he didn't help me a shot. I said, I beat him two and one, Muirfield, by myself. I said, Larry was there. He made some of the same scores that I did, but if he hadn't put those scores down, I'd have beat him. I said, you're capable of doing the same thing. But I said, all week long, you've been belly aching about needing help. I said, so I have made up my mind who you going to play with. Roll those balls out there. One of them rolled up perfect. Tiger. <laughs> he looked down at that ball. He said, you pairing me with Tiger this week? I said, you've been bellyaching, needing help. I said, he's number one in the world. That's the best I got. <laughs> 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 well, the rest is history because, good Lord, Phil played bad. <laughs> so, you know, it was uh, – you know, they were like nine under through 17 holes, and Colin and Podrick beat them. So I couldn't go away from them in the second match. I had to give them another chance to win. And Phil played so bad in the second match, it was foursomes. And I think he hit it, played Army golf, left, right, left, right. And yeah. Tiger was worn out at the end of the day. Yeah. That's interesting. The two different perspectives. So you had Tiger who said, Seems like pair me with whoever you want, Captain. I'm good enough to win. And the other perspective was really worried about and needing to know who's going to play with to get mentally prepared. Yeah, I think, you know, the way I read it, I think Phil knew he needed help because he had switched clubs and everything else. Right. And I think he wanted the next best player besides Tiger Woods. I got you. And Tiger said, I want to prove to the world who is the best. Yep. It's a different, so I gave, different mindset. And I told Phil, I said, be careful what you're asking for right now because I just gave you the world's biggest stage. Yeah. Tiger wanted the world's biggest stage. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, youth golf. And you have this clinic here, and you get to work with a lot of amateurs. You probably see a lot of parents, too. Uh-huh. And I'm curious if you sometimes see parents that think they're helping, but they're actually hurting. We see that a lot, you know, but, you know, in their own way, they are trying to help. You know, they just, they're not, 
uh, I use this word loosely, they're not golf educated enough to know the difference. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and the only thing that they do have is that's their child. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can't tell someone to do someone what to do with their child, uh, even though you know better. And uh, so we do see a lot of that, you know, parents that are way too involved and don't know enough to be that involved. Mm-hmm. And then we see some others, ironically, that people come in and they know enough to turn them over to you and stay out of it until they become really good. And then they get involved. <laughs> yeah. So, at, at this stage of your life, you're 63, maybe 64 uh-huh. this this April. Uh, a great career, I think 14 PGA Tour victories. Yeah, a major, two players, four Ryder Cups, and a, and a captaincy. Um, what's golf mean to you now, and, and and what is your outlook as you go forward? You know, it's funny. I'm I'm in the process of trying to figure that out right okay. now. Uh, I hardly play golf anymore, which is a, not good. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people don't know this. I have two artificial hips and an artificial left knee, and you know, I was a right-handed player, so that puts all the pressure on the left side, which both joints are replaced. And I I can't go with any speed to my left side, so I don't hit it very far anymore. And You know, my brain is as young as it ever was. You know, I still remember what I used to be capable of. So now to find joy in the game, I've got to redefine what I think is okay. Mm -hmm. And that's hard to do when you played at one level and say, okay, I'm going to find joy in this second level down here. Or, you know, it isn't even second level. It's (laughs) it's the 15th level. (laughs) Uh, You know, and, you know, I'm try to ask myself okay how could you find happiness in golf joy in golf and that's tough you know i think the quality of the golf shot no matter how far it goes uh the good one still feels good when i hit it Mm -hmm. so maybe uh instead of trying to shoot a 72 hole score or an 18 hole score maybe just a single shot at a time has to be adequate you know well, I, I know you can contribute to the game just with your mental approach. And uh, if you don't have it physically, but just with through your teaching and the mindset, just the, the times we've talked, um, I love talking about the mental side of golf because I guess the case could be made that's more important than the physical. Well, it's pretty darn important, I'll tell you that. Yeah. You know, uh, having the right mindset before you go into a tournament is really uh you know i made the statement to a kid here the other day i said you know i I played on average 26 tournaments a year and i don't think i played two or three tournaments a year where i felt like i was really doing everything right and that didn't guarantee winning just because you were doing it right you know the rest of the time let's just say it's three tournaments that means i played 23 tournaments a year with less than all i had that's hard to beat the best players in the world when you're doing that. Mm-hmm. So the difference is what's inside of you at that point. And I was still having to make money. You know, I had to make my living that way. Right. So, you know, what does that mean? That means that you got to make uh, applesauce out of shit sometimes. <laughs> Excuse my French, yeah. but that's the truth, yeah. you know. And 
I made a living doing that, you know, where I wasn't playing all that good, but somehow I'd finish 15th or whatever. You know, it's it, when you're hitting on all cylinders, you're going to finish in the top five. If you're a really good player, you're going to finish somewhere up in the top five. Winning is a whole different story. But, you know, and even in those days, we were playing, you know, the first place checks for the most part at that point were six, seven hundred thousand dollars. You know, at two thousand, the winner uh, that was the first million dollar check they ever paid. So, when when was that? When I won TPC. Okay. So, yeah. you know, a little trivia: I won the first six digit check the tour ever paid, okay. and I won the first seven digit tour the uh, check that the tour ever paid. What which was the first? The, the first one was the TPC yep. in. 1983 and 17 years later it was a million and 80,000 okay so uh kind of cool little stat there i don't know how it worked out that i was able to get both those checks but thank you yeah that's cool. <laughs> well, last topic i want to cover is, is some of the young players today There's like a lot of good young players and if you compare your early success i mean i think a a good parallel maybe would be like a Morikawa or a Hovland. I think Morikawa's got two majors. Hovland's won quite a bit overseas. Uh, but we're real quick to want to predict future success and name the next Jack or the next Tiger. And, and that doesn't seem to necessarily be fair. Well, I don't think it's fair, but at the same time, that's the nature of the game. You know, that's the nature of the world, basically. And I didn't handle it very well, to be honest with you. You know, I... I didn't I didn't have to you know some people would have said I didn't have to work for my success early on. Well, I did. I worked really hard. I earned it. But maybe I didn't struggle enough to understand what the struggles were. Mm-hmm. And maybe I got complacent and thought, well, this isn't that hard. I can do this. And you know, maybe if I had struggled a little bit more, I would have appreciated the the journey of that. You know, one thing, if I've learned anything for, you know, I'm 63, almost 64, it's more about the journey than it is the actual result. Mm-hmm. And I wished I would have changed the journey a little bit. Maybe not change the results any, but just change the journey a little bit. Is that what you would have told 25-year-old Hal? I would have made him aware of it. Yeah. It would have been his decision whether he did. Uh, you know, my dad placed so much importance on the present. And, I mean, he was constantly, you know, next week, next week, next week. I never had a chance to breathe. Mm-hmm. And finally, I just, I guess I got exhausted of being prepared, trying, and and then failing and being told I was failing, you know. Uh, not by him necessarily, but you know. Well, they they called you the next Jack Nicholas, yeah. or the bear apparent, yeah. or whatever the names were. And I wasn't. I wasn't. That's that. a lot. I wasn't that, and they were letting me know you've let us down. You yeah. know, you weren't that. We expected you to be that, and you know, maybe that's why I like talking to kids that come in here because I don't want to see that happen. You know, one of the one of the problems that I see kids doing today is they're always blaming something because we have so much data now uh you know the cameras are so good the radars the everything is great and they have data they know what they're doing you know they expect to do it right all the time and 
that's not going to happen. That's never happened by anybody. And just because you've got access to that sort of stuff doesn't mean you're going to wake up feeling the same every day. Mm-hmm. I mean, you played enough sports in your life. You didn't feel the same way every day. No, no. And, uh, you know, so trying to help kids understand that, you know, don't always blame your golf swing. You know, look within first. You know, you're going to have to, you're going to make a lot of bad swings. And here's the truth, Chris. You can't, I can pull up swings right there, and I can't tell the difference between a good and a bad swing. All Everybody's swing looks really good. People come in here to take a lesson, and I'll say, let's look at that one. No, that wasn't a good one. So they'll hit another one. That wasn't a good one. So they'll hit another one. Well, that was a good one. Let's look at that one. Then I'll show them all three. They all three look just alike. <laughs> That's the truth. There's not enough difference in those three swings to actually determine whether one shot was good or bad based on what you saw. Mm-hmm. So that's how what a fine line a golfer's dealing with. It's a it's a hard game. It is a hard game. Humbling game. It is a humbling game. You know, uh, the hardest part about it when you played baseball, you had some teammates. You could have had an off night, and everybody else's day could have been good enough that you still won. Happened a lot. <laughs> And likewise, they could have had an off day, and you had a great day, and you didn't win, even though you had a great day. So the truth of the matter is we've got to find satisfaction in something besides the end result sometimes. And in golf, it's all on your shoulders. You can't blame it on anybody else. Mm -hmm. You hit every shot. That made it hard. That's what makes golf one of the hardest games there is out there. Yeah, I think that's that's good part of golf and the bad part. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe why you like the Ryder Cup so much because there was a team aspect. Yeah, I mean, well, that's why I felt like the the success we had in '99 was special to me because you know I shared it with somebody. You know, we could share the joy of it together. Well, Hal, this has been a true pleasure. Uh, thank you for sharing your unique grit story with us. Well, I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks. Guys, he's a lot like nails. He plays like nails. He's tough as nails. I like to call him so.